Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Season 2 premiere of the Here We Are podcast. Thank you guys for all the support. I hope you enjoyed Season 1. If you did not hear the very last episode of the uh, of Season 1, the finale, if you did not hear that in the outro, I explained that this season we're taking things in an additional direction on top of all of your uh all all of the kind of evolutionary biology and psychology and neuroscience and and behavioral economics and marketing and all that good stuff learning about ourselves uh additionally i'm going to like once a month once every 6 weeks i'm going to figure it out um and see how often i'm going to do these but i'm going to uh be attempting to reach out to Charity organizations, um, like for example, this week I I was in Portland and I I was able to get in contact with a uh, homeless outreach and support and uh, organization in Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, called Central City Concern, and uh, I'm having a couple people on um, this week. One, the, this first episode is, uh, is is a bit more toward the uh, serious side of things. It's the director of the Central City Concern, and, and um, the uh, the following day, I'm I'm tomorrow, I'm releasing an episode that is a uh, former um, homeless a man and a drug addict who is now in recovery and helping others in recovery as well, and. Um, and doing well for himself and improving his life. So I'm trying to get some people on on the ground um, that are kind of dealing with some of these uh, bigger social issues that we may be talking about from kind of a scientific perspective uh, and with academics who aren't necessarily as hands-on. And so the idea is that we'll, we'll be um, gaining a, a clearer picture of what exactly is going on out there in the world and um, how we behave the way we do, how we construct the societies that we end up in and that sort of thing. So I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. You can always, um, of course, write to the Here We Are podcast and give your feedback. 
Um, I've, I've been a little slow with getting back to people a little bit lately, but I will get back to each and every one of you, I think. Um, <laughs> I, that, that's the plan. Um, I, I typically do. Here's something that I would like from you guys. I try not to ask for much for you guys other than reviews and sharing and all of that. And I know I, I, um, sometimes pester you guys about that sort of stuff in some of these intros and outros, but this one is, uh, particularly, um, special. If you can do me a favor in this week, go on the herewearepodcast.com website and please donate to the Central City Concern. It's in Portland. Um, This is why, despite it being a good thing um, and you helping out uh, homeless people and everything else, and and I know it's in Portland and it might not be in the community that you're in, um, and, uh, but uh, this week, because this is my first time doing this with the charity organizations, I I had them create a separate link specifically for the Here We Are podcast so we can track the donations and the clicks and the feedbacks and who's checking out what. So if you can go on and at least click on it and then, you know, if you can find it in your good and supportive and wonderful hearts to donate a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, one million dollars, whatever you can do. I'm trying to take advantage of uh, this um, Thanksgiving season. People are often in a more generous mood, and I am hoping that I can use that to help uh, this podcast and to help encourage you to donate this week specifically because if um this is kind of like a beta test uh if we're able to figure out how to track these things and see that there's some interest and and um support out there that will help me get guests in the future and i might in the future be able to um reach out to more organizations and do more tracking and and maybe eventually i i would like to eventually figure out a thing so that um i don't know maybe on the website it will eventually show who's donating or something like that so your name can be on there we're trying to figure all that out that i all this stuff is probably going to take a little while um but a big big first step would to go on uh, it would be to go on to the herewearepodcast.com website, click on the Central City Concern donation link, and donate. And that will help me and help um, us figure out um, how to proceed in the future with with some of the stuff. And it will help me get a lot more guests, which is one, one of the hardest parts about this podcast is finding good interesting guests who uh who can make time and have interest in coming on so um that will help and uh, other than that i hope you enjoy today's episode let me know what you think uh this one's a bit more on the serious side tomorrow's episode is a a, a, a bit lighter but uh you know a very big important topic and i'm happy that we are addressing it with people who actually work hands-on with uh homeless people and and with these issues and and know what it's like on the ground and i think this is going to uh help kind of enlighten some of the other information that we're getting from the other episodes all right um some of that was probably a little bit redundant but 
you guys are awesome, and I'm sure you didn't mind that this was an, a, a bit longer of an intro than normal. I'm just really excited for season two. Thank you for your support. Thanks for listening, and I'll uh, talk to you on the flip side. <laughs> are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I have a very special episode. Uh, We're trying something a a, a little bit new, taking a little bit of a new direction and continuing effort to uh, open up new ways of of looking at life and the human condition. And today I'm in Portland, one of my favorite cities in the world, and I'm at the uh, Central City Concern talking with... Ed Blackburn, who has been the executive director here for the last 25 years. Thank you, Ed, for coming on the program. Well, thank you for having me. How are you doing today? Good, good. Um, so can you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what Central City um, Concern is and a little bit of the history? Because you've, you've been here about Since 20, yeah, 25 years or so. That was the, uh, when was the... Uh, Agency was founded in 1979, so I got here about 12 years after it was uh, initiated. Okay, and yeah. and what do you guys do here? Well, you know, we uh, are unique in a sense that we have a very comprehensive approach to uh, ending homelessness, uh, as we say, one person at a, at a time. So we are a provider of very low-income housing. We own or manage about 1,600 units of housing. And we place a lot of people in the community with other landlords, other property uh, owners. So probably on any given night, we have another 200 to 300 people placed in uh, with other landlords. And so uh, we have that housing for very low-income people. And then we also have a, a very robust health care delivery uh, focus here with primary care, uh, specialty mental health, specialty addictions treatment, with a lot, lot of out-of-the-office case management where people are being visited in their homes or in the community uh, where we can reach them. We also do a lot of employment services here. So uh, typically over the last five years or so, we've placed about 500 people, uh, homeless people, in jobs with uh, it's a it's a list of about 300 employers in the metropolitan region of Portland. So, uh, and we stick with these folks for two years. We help the employer um, overcome some issues if they arise, and then we help them with more training and education uh, if they want to advance their income. We also do real estate development. So we have about 140 units of new housing that we're currently under construction uh, or financing. So. Uh, we're a very active organization. It's kind of a very comprehensive approach. This uh, sounds like a very big organization. How many employees? We have about 750 employees. Uh, it's The operating budget is about $65 million, and we also manage several tax credit partnerships that are investors in low-income housing, probably another 5 or $6 million. So total revenues are about $70 million or will be $70 million by the end of uh, June, in this next June. That's amazing. So how, how are, um, are, are the homeless people, are they coming 
in, how are they finding this? Or are you guys doing outreach? Or? Well, you know, we don't have to do much uh, in terms of uh, advertising our services. Uh, there's a very high need here in the, in the Portland area. So uh, we have projects in two counties in the uh, uh, Portland uh, metropolitan area of three counties. So uh, we get a lot of referrals uh, from different um, from local government agencies, from other nonprofit providers, and a lot of it is word on the street. And so uh, we have no, no need to really advertise our services at this point. Hmm. Um, so I was wondering, you, you may not have um, answers for me for a few of these questions, but I was curious um, if you could tell me a little bit about the um, homeless demographic in Portland specifically as compared to, um, you know, do you have any statistics as compared to like the national average or, mm-hmm. um, it, I mean, it seems like, uh, it seems like here in Seattle and it, 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 I, I notice a lot of, a lot more people on the streets than some of the places that I travel to. Right. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I, I think Portland, in terms of the uh, the Northwest, if you include the San Francisco area and North, uh, is probably has a um, it's it's in the average of homelessness. All West Coast cities, including Los Angeles and San Diego, are experiencing increases in street what's called street homelessness. And so, uh, part of the confusion around how many homeless people you get is how you measure what homelessness is. If you do not include shelters and transitional housing, Portland has about 1,800 people in the last street count. And what that means is within uh, a one-night one street count that usually occurs in February of the year, 1,800 people were literally homeless on the streets. There were another uh, 30, There's another 2,200 people that were in shelters or transitional housing. By federal definitions, they are... All 4,000 are considered homeless, uh, but uh, what the most the layperson sees is people on the streets camping in parks, uh, in doorways, uh, uh, in some areas of town. Uh, but you'll see that phenomenon in, in a lot of cities, uh, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I saw. I mean, even even people that have homes or apartments, I've I've seen. I saw st- some statistic about. Uh, there's, there, I think there's 1.5 million people living on two dollars a day, or some insane number like that. That doesn't even seem. I haven't seen. I haven't seen that number, but a lot of people come to us. They have no income, right? And uh, some people may have SSI disability benefits, or we help them get those benefits if they have a true disability, if they're truly qualified. Um, and others, we help get jobs, but. Uh, our average income in our housing is about seven to eight thousand dollars a year, uh, and so you know they are uh, really on the line economically. The thirty uh, percent of income going to rents is the is the definition that the, the federal government uses for a burdened person. In other words, if you're paying more than thirty percent of your income for rent, you have very few resources left over to pay your other bills. Uh, and the median family income uh, 30% in the Portland area is about $15,000. So our average income of our clients is half of that. 
So this low-income housing that we're providing and some other providers, uh, housing providers, are uh, providing a very critical uh, to, uh, you know, to deal with the issue of homelessness, and we need a lot more of it. Uh, there's a real shortage of housing available uh, in the metropolitan region here uh, for people at those low-income levels, and we see the same thing uh, in Seattle and San Francisco, Los Angeles, and other cities on the East Coast as well. So, so someone, what's the process? So someone's um, homeless or near homelessness, and they they hear that they can go to this central city concern and and get help. What what ha do they just walk in the front door? How does well people get to us uh, from because we do all these different types of services. They may come into the clinic uh, with a chronic uh, medical condition that needs long term care and management. Uh, they may come in that way. They, uh, a lot of people will come in uh, because they want to get uh, control over their addictions that are driving so much of the negative impacts on their lives, including in many cases homelessness. And they'll come in uh, to what we uh, call a subacute detoxification center. We run, it's called the Hooper Center, where they're going to be medically managed where they, while they withdraw from drugs and then we're going to work on post-detox uh, access to treatment and housing if they need it. But we also have a lot of partners in the community that we also uh, that also provide inpatient treatment for our uh, folks coming out of the detox center. And so we have uh, a relationship with other alcohol and drug treatment providers where we provide housing and employment services for them. So there's many ways in which people come into our services. And for our transitional housing, the wait is usually about two weeks now. It used to be about one or two days. Uh, and for our permanent housing, for housing which we're, there's no time limit as long as a person meets the income requirements uh, and any program requ requirements that may exist for that housing. As long as they meet those requirements, they can, uh, they can stay there as long as they want. Uh, for that housing, we have eight to nine month waiting lists. Wow. And... And you, what year did you say that you started? I started here in 1992. So how would you say the this landscape has changed in Portland in the last 25 years? Is it... Um, well, homelessness was pretty bad in 1992, I have to tell you. Yeah? Uh, it drove uh, a lot of efforts in the city uh, to uh, redo our shelter programs, to add more housing at the low-income levels. What Central City concerned, because we ran the Hooper Detox Center and had these specialty uh, addictions treatment um, access for people, was we used to see in, in, in where a lot of our uh, programs are located, housing is located, is, is in Old Town, uh, in downtown Portland. And in this area here was uh, known as Skid Row, and we saw a lot of... Um, what we called chronic alcoholics that were in and out of homelessness for many years. Uh, that was the kind of uh, iconic homeless person back in those days, 1992. What we saw in the 1990s, especially around 1995, uh, and it's still happening, is a, a major shift to uh, heroin addiction, opiate addiction, uh, and also the deinstitutionalization of people with serious mental illness coming out on the streets. That actually started in the late 1980s, uh, but we're seeing another wave of it uh, in Oregon and some other states, I believe it's happening 
again, where people are being, the idea is to get people out of state psychiatric hospital, uh, out of secure residential facilities, and, and get them into the community. Unfortunately, a big drive in the recent years to uh, increase that uh, community-based housing and treatment has run up against some of the lowest vacancy rates out in the rental market that I've ever seen. Uh, so vacancy rates are now uh, so low, uh, and it's very hard to place people in the community, especially when they have uh, spotty rental histories or, uh, or very limited income because rents have increased about 40% since uh, 2010. So it is a housing crisis here for people uh, at low incomes and and people who also just need affordable housing. And in fact, it's now reaching into uh, middle class, lower middle class incomes. So it, all those things are complicating this. And so we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing more people out on the streets with serious mental illness, I believe. Uh, and. We're also just from the economy of, uh, you know, 2009, really a depression, especially at the lower income levels. I I think we've seen a lot of people with homelessness being driven by economics and having a hard time to recover. And the the length of the uh, recovery in terms of working people has probably resulted more homelessness as well. Yeah, I was, I was curious. I wanted to know a little more about. Kind it of could the have kind been of... a lot worse. I'll have to tell you that. Uh, I think uh, local governments and federal government did as much as they could to stop that uh, rising unemployment rate that we saw job losses in the seven hundred fifty thousand dollar. Excuse me, seven hundred fifty thousand people uh, becoming unemployed a month in the first few months of two thousand nine. Right. At the end of 2008. And uh, I think with that, and the, and the local governments here also reacted doing as much as they could to um, keep people housed and, and in services. Uh, and I also think the ACA Medica- uh, Medicaid expansion under what's known as Obamacare mm-hmm. uh, was really planned for at the state of Oregon. And the state put a lot of resources in, into making sure that the Medicaid expansion was successful, and that has provided a lot of resources for low-income people and people that are homeless on the uh, treatment side, whether it be primary care or addictions or mental health. So there are some good things that happened that attenuated that uh, impact, uh, but it's still uh, the housing shortage is, is really driving a lot of the homelessness now. Yeah, I don't, uh, and, and, you know, this is very anecdotal, of course, but I actually didn't have, um, as a struggling artist, poor comedian, I didn't have health insurance for about 11 years, and I got it um, just before the deadline for mm-hmm. signing up, and then I broke both of my feet about two months later yeah, right. and needed two major surgeries, and it's like... Yeah, I can't imagine what my life would be like now had I. It might be very different. It would. It wouldn't be. Uh, be We we did see before the ACA expansion people becoming homeless because of uh, medical bills piling up, right? uh, Losing their job because of an injury, and then having these medical bills and uh, ending up homelessness as a result of some serious injury or chronic condition that was uh, manifested. And I'm just. I was a little bit. Confused about what you're saying. I was just uh, hoping you could clear it up a little bit. What what was the shift, the change when when there um, uh, when people that were getting um, uh, mental health treatment mm-hmm. they were 
um, they were being released from institutions, or they were, they were pushed out? No, there, I'm, I, there were really two two phases. Uh, the the big phase really occurred uh, when uh, deinstitutionalized uh, deinstitutionalization was really implemented in the 1980s. The policy uh, that led to that deinstitutionalization uh, goes back to the 60s, but had never really been implemented until the 1980s. And what we saw was a lot of state psychiatric hospitals closing down beds, wings of hospitals, sometimes completely uh, uh, closing down hospitals. And the idea was that resources were to become available uh, to communities to house people, to provide services as an alternative to inexpensive and, in some cases, ineffective uh, treatment in a psychiatric, secure psychiatric hospital. Uh, people were stuck in these hospitals for years and years and years, mm. that, uh, many of which uh, did not need to be there. But what did not happen in the 1980s is the, uh, is the adequate uh, investment in community resources for these people coming out of these institutions. So there, that deinstitutionalization also uh, ran parallel to a very severe cutbacks in uh, the, uh, for the development of uh, public housing for poor people. So there was a big shift also implemented in the 1980s uh, away from uh, building units of housing to providing rent subsidies uh, for people to use in the open market, which can work well when vacancy rates are high. Uh, but do not work well when you do not have a un enough units available at those income levels. And so right. what we're way behind. We're way behind uh, in the country. We're way behind in the Portland metropolitan area and the number of units that are actually constructed units where you could actually, right. if you had a rent subsidy, you could actually place a person in that unit. I see. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, that, that's much clearer now. Portland's such a... Uh, a popular city these days, and there's so many people. Well, um, we're seeing a huge in. migration of people to Portland. Right. Uh, it's 30,000, I believe, since 2010. It's been 100,000, I think, in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. something like that, and they're projecting another 150,000 over the next 10 years. So th that is a huge in-migration, and within that in-migration comes people from all backgrounds, from all situations. So you have wealthy people, uh, you have retiring people, you have young people that have jobs waiting for them, you have people who are, you know, trying to get, you know, trying for a new start and maybe fragile uh, in terms of their economic status. So we have people from all walks of life coming. So you would expect to see with that kind of in-migration also an increase of homelessness. So it was you know, we've housed thousands of people in uh, the metropolitan area over the last few years, but it, the rate of housing people is not keeping up with the number of people who are becoming homeless here. So this housing, are you guys constructing new buildings? Are you taking, like, old hotels or...? or... We've done all those things. Uh, <laughs> we've we've con converted a, a couple of hotels to housing, uh, uh, but now... Uh, uh, you know, we're involved in uh, three housing projects now at Central City Concern. Uh, one is a 60-unit uh, building for homeless families in the adjacent county, Clackamas County. Uh, one is downtown. It's a 39-unit apartment building. And then we have another uh, project in inner northeast Portland. Uh, it's a 47-unit apartment building. But we're not the only ones. What we're not doing yet is over the last you know, 10 years is build enough of those units uh, to low income level. 
Uh, I think the city of Portland and Multnomah County have really uh, tried to push the agenda forward in, in uh, making uh, financial resources for expanding housing for low-income levels and for people with special needs. Uh, uh, and that's to be applauded. But those units are not in place yet, and it's going to take a year, two, or three uh, to uh, make that commitment uh, real on, you know, units on the ground. And it, so what are these, uh, uh, what is this housing like? Is it, uh, is it like dorm room style housing? I mean, I mean you, you, what'd you say, there was a eight month waiting list or something? Uh, for, for our housing. And I, I think that, you know, that would be in the range for a lot of affordable housing and low income housing at this point. That was not true just three, four years ago. It's really picked up, I'd say, really in the last two years. And this last year has gotten even worse. Uh, with this in-migration of people coming, we have a lot of apartment units. We have a building boom going on in ap apartments, and we're also seeing more um, home construction and a number of other things, but it's not keeping pace with the demand. So um, it's produced another type of crisis. But the kind of housing... Uh, I think there's a lot of experiments going on now with trying to create housing more efficiently. Um, you know, there are the old-style old single-room occupancy hotels where, you know, you had your basic room and maybe a, a toilet facility and a wash basin, but you had community kitchens on a floor, uh, community showers. Uh, that is becoming, you know... Things come back around again, and people are saying, well, you know, for some, some people, that might just be great. Uh, others, you know, it's, it could very much look like studio apartments. And there's also a uh, look at what's called tiny homes. People are looking at, at those alternatives and also uh, more cost-effective ways of building housing uh, with some availability, uh, well, I would say, comparably speaking, with good, uh, good public transportation in our area. Uh, people uh, can live outside of the inner city and get into the inner city. Uh, but we also need uh, low-income housing in the inner city because a lot of people work downtown. And uh, it's a lot of pressure to, to live too far away from downtown when you have to go back and forth on a commute every day uh, for some families. And and low-income people are being pushed out further and further. And it the I hear many stories uh, of people under experiencing that stress of having maybe they have a couple of kids in the local school way outside of Portland and they're going back and forth uh, and the stresses around uh, making sure your kids are in school, making appointments uh, at your school, getting them to the doctor when they need to get to the doctor on an emergency basis, you know, on an urgent basis. Uh, it can be very stressful. Um, just to quick aside i guess when you said tiny housing is is are those those i'm starting to see in the news a lot now the the little portable structures yeah. where they're using the old like freight boxes or whatever it might be is that there's all kinds of things that are called tiny houses at this point they've come under different codes but what we're seeing here in the Pacific Northwest, and I think in California, is these very attractively designed uh, small units. Sometimes they're on a, a trailer. They have actually on wheels. Uh, they felt they are under a different kind of code um, compliance issue. Uh, others are, are more stable, but probably could be moved. And I've seen the container, the railroad container cars being, and truck containers being 
converted. Uh, you know, that's relatively new on the scene, and there's a lot of issues to be resolved around around uh, how do you regulate that that kind of housing. Right. Yeah, yeah. whether they're legal or um, And they're not, you know, property. for a lot of cities, you know, where you want to have higher density of housing and you want to, at any rate, uh, it would not, it's not economical at that point. Right. Um, so what are, what kind of um, demographic are, are you getting of people coming in? Are there, I, I mean, I'm sure it ranges all over the place from people with mental illness to <laughs> seniors to single mothers. Um, it, when you're, uh, like you said, there's all these waiting lists. Are there certain criteria that you guys are using to determine who the people in the most need might be? And it, well, it, you know, they're like you hear about like a liver transplant or something, yeah. and they use the. Yeah, <laughs> there are different, different types of you know for people literally on the street. Uh, there are different types of assessment tools. Uh, that are being used around the country, uh, some of them are well, more well-known than others. But uh, uh, sometimes, it's uh, for us, it's people coming out of the detox center. They've already been established to be very vulnerable uh, with uh, a severe addiction. People with mental illness are getting referred to us, uh, usually from the counties that, that are the mental health authority uh, in this region. And so there's different ways that people are getting different types of assessment depending on what their presenting problems are. Uh, we have, uh, I think, over the last few years seen a rise in homeless families, uh, and that's probably a lot to do with the vacancy rates and the, uh, you know, the 2009 to 2010, 11. The years are getting a little mixed up for me, but yeah, no I, I would say with the Great, the great Recession, uh, there are more, more families uh, becoming homeless in and so we've had this period of very high unemployment rates. And then we see the economy getting better, unemployment rates going down, but then vacancy rates uh, also going way down with that improved economy and the attractiveness of this metropolitan area. But there, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure that there's a good handle on why so many cities are experiencing this influx of people uh, and why. And, uh, you see, you see the similar story in different places in the country. Where Salt Lake City is another one where they've seen a lot of people moving into the city, um, and again they're facing all kinds of you know that includes all kinds of people. So Chicago, I believe, is I don't know that they've seen a big increase in homelessness, but they've also saw some pressure on some traditionally low-income housing that's now being converted for higher income levels. So including some of those single-room occupancy hotels uh, that mm. historically have housed very low-income people. Um, so do you think that, um, that, that what, there was, was there a big shift once, you said when you started there was a lot of alcohol abuse right. problems, and then there was this shift to right. um, heroin or opiates or whatever, and, and which I imagine coincided with... with um, just the prescription drugs right. and, and painkillers in, in uh, increasing their, yeah. their usage. It's becoming well documented at this point that also cheap heroin coming in. Uh, it used to traditionally come from Southeast Asia, and it was a pure, very pure form of heroin that would come in. And, it's so, and it was expensive, and maintaining a heroin habit... Uh, was very expensive, uh, but beginning in the 90s, we saw heroin coming from other places. 
uh, mostly from uh, Mexico, but some other places south. But our demand is driving that. And a lot of that demand was uh, incited by prescription of opiates for pain. And uh, there was a phenomenon of specialized clinics opening in various parts of the country that basically pill mills, uh, Oxycontin, those types of uh, Oxycodone, those types of uh, um, substances uh, being really liberally prescribed. Right. Uh, those substances are expensive and People's, if they entered into an addiction around it, needed more and more, they couldn't afford it. And so it was documented switching to heroin, cheap heroin, and which is a lot cheaper than those substances. So these things are all connected. Right. We, we're just seeing a report uh, uh, about uh, mortality in this country. Uh, and for the first time, uh, they've seen going back now about 13 years, uh, mortality for middle-aged white people actually increasing in this country. Uh, people between 45 and 60 dying younger at increasing rates, and a lot of that is tied to uh, substance abuse, uh, particularly this heroin addiction. Yeah, it, I mean, again, this is this is anecdotal, but uh, it, I mean, a couple things that uh, are sort of personal to me. One of my one of my exes, her father was this guy who was, um, you know, he was a veterinarian and very uh, very generous guy, a real pillar of the community type and and um, you know, he was a little older and I, I'm sure just the type of person that, you, you know, viewed, viewed drug users as you know, these people with serious problems and, you know, bad criminal, criminal behavior or whatever and he ended up, he had a uh, he had an injury at one point, and at the same time, um, his first son died, and he ended up getting himself hooked on painkiller. You know, it's it's just a different. It's it's not like finding crack on the street or something like that, where where it's like you've mm. oh you've seen on TV that crack is bad mm. or whatever. Now this is a doctor giving you these pills, and and a lot of people aren't prepared for. Uh, or, or don't understand the risks involved, and I don't even—I don't think doctors do the best job. I mean, I was on painkillers mm -hmm. last year, and, and doctors were always like, "Oh, it's well, if you're in pain, it's it's not addictive." And there's a lot of misinformation about that, and I'm not a clinician. Right. And I'm uh, a medical provider. Might think I'm speaking out of turn, but we have medical providers here, and we we do a lot of. Um, you know, a lot of research around this. We are a major, our Old Town Clinic is a major uh, clinic where people are referred to uh, who have been on pain medications and also histories of substance abuse uh, because we have developed a specialty around that. Uh, so I'm familiar with a lot of the research. I'm also familiar with a lot of the history. Uh, so it is now well documented um, that... Uh, you know, beginning in the 90s, there was this uh, medical ethic that uh, people have a right to experience no pain. Mm. And it became ubiquitous in terms of uh, the prescribing for pain. And I think now there's being a reset in the medical community, realizing that what they would call itrogenic effects, in other words, the cure is causing a different kind of problem that may be more serious than the problem you're originally treating. And uh, the truth of it is uh, people who become addicted to um, even prescribed opiates, their tolerance will go up over time. And the longer 
uh, a person is on those substances, the more they'll need to use in order to maintain that um, condition of experiencing no pain. And so you get in this dangerous zone where if you stop using those substances or you're cut off for some reason financially, uh, you, you will experience severe withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, I didn't have very severe withdrawal symptoms because I, I wasn't on them very long, but I definitely was, was not myself, and I was very irritable. Exactly. And, and there, yeah. was, there was a, a definite um, difference. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I recently had a neuroscientist, uh, Matthew Lieberman, on. We were talking about his book, Social, and it's all about the neuroscience of how the brain is wired to be social. But he, we talked a lot about how, um, how the... Uh, the part of the brain that processes kind of social rejection and social pain is actually the same part that processes physical pain. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of easy to make this transition. I know when I was in a lot of, uh, you know, my sure, my feet hurt physically and everything, but I was also, I broke both my feet and I had to spend three months living in my parents' basement, which was, you know, kind of embarrassing and everything else. And, and, um, and that was part of the reason why I would uh, take the painkiller sometimes was because I was just in the midst of a depression as well. And then, you know, I, I can see how if I forced myself to stop asking the doctor for painkillers because mm -hmm. I was worried about, uh, you know, getting out of hand. Yeah. But, um, but it, I mean, it's... It, when you haven't experienced it, I guess it's it's pretty hard to relate. And obviously, I can't relate at all. But, uh, but well, anybody that's tried to quit smoking should be able to relate. <laughs> right, anybody right. that's tried to go on a diet, right? Uh, anyone that's tried to control their diabetes through exercise and diet should know how difficult that can be. Uh, I once once a smoker. I bet you, I quit a hundred times before yeah, I finally yeah. or before I was finally able to quit. So the worst thing we can do uh, really is judge people who are fi find themselves in that situation. And they, usually people are not realizing they're getting there as it's happening. Uh, sometimes they do have subtle messages that something's happening and, and warnings. Uh, but the mind is a fantastic organ and its ability to cause a person to go into denial about what their real problem is or what some of the significant contributions to their life experience at that moment are. Uh, I think our brains are actually struggle, uh, are actually structured to help us do that. Right. Um, and so uh, it, it is a process, usually of breaking down the denial uh, before a person says, uh, okay, what do I need to do to change this situation? I mean, when you're in the moment, it's, it's hard to see things any other way. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was in the best shape of my life before mm -hmm. I hurt myself, and I remember... I, I can intellectually be like, I remember feeling the best I'd ever felt in, in my life, but I can't, now it's like, I can't imagine what that even felt like, and then you fall into habits and, and you but justify still, things to yourself. Still, when it comes to homelessness, you know, it, you know there are all kinds of uh, studies on, you know, uh, populations that make up the homeless population. Mm -hmm. It's not a homogenous right. population. Uh, it's about 40%, maybe 50% in some communities. Uh, it's highly related to issues around addiction. And mm. these days there would be a high percentage of people, uh, much higher than 30 years ago, that are, that are addicted to heroin or other opiates. Uh, still, there are a lot of other people. Uh, there may be as many as 35 to 40% as well who have a serious mental illness out on the streets. 
and then you have this episodical homelessness related to um, uh, disruptions in the labor market or high vacancy rates. Uh, and so there, I don't want to right. create the impression that you know, homeless it, people it's are... All it's user. all drug users. No, 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 yeah. of course, of course. Right. Right. I'm just exploring that one yeah. right. uh, specific aspect. Right. And, and what, uh, what um, are the... So, so could you talk a little bit about just some of these people that lose their job and are just simply, uh, you know, run? I, I mean, uh, a lot of people just don't have a savings account these days, have, you know, a, a job where they think they have this reliable source of income coming in and, and things happen. I rem- my last job before I went full-time as a comedian, I was a security <laughs> guard at, at some construction site, and, and one day some kids snuck in the property and blew up a couple buildings at the construction site, and the security company got, got fired, and everyone, everyone got laid off. And so, like, the craziest circumstances can, can lead to um, unemployment. You know, right. it, it, what... Um, do you have any idea of, of, of the kind of numbers of people that are simply just going through um, a temporary unemployment that find themselves being evicted from their homes or whatever? I don't, I don't know that we have good numbers on that alone. We know that typically in a metropolitan area uh, of your homeless population, about 15 to 20 percent are considered chronically homeless people. And it's usually, it also involves some kind of disability, uh, like mental illness or addictions. Not always, but often. Uh, And there's different levels of mental illness. Uh, People might have the imagery of a person who's in a psychotic, um, you know, psychotic state. It's not always that that clear. Uh, It could be major depression. Uh, Other things could be affecting a person's outlook on life. Uh, and then the, the other population could be is coming in and out of homelessness, the 80 percent that's that's left. And of that population, there are probably these days a significant amount of people who did lose their jobs, were financially fragile to begin with when the Great Recession hit, or it could happen at any time to individuals who don't have a lot of backup resources. They may not have, they may have friends who will let them stay with them for a while. They may have family that may let them stay with them for a while. Uh, but they may find themselves on the street, and if it lasts long enough, they may start learning how to survive on the street. Uh, they may develop relationships on the street. Uh, they may be somewhat migratory after the first few months of homeless. And so there's also a population, particularly on the West Coast, that moves up down the coast. Uh, some people may do that for a year or two. Some people may do it for years. Uh, and it becomes a part of a way of living, a way of life. Mm. And amongst those folks, there will be active drug users. There will be some people with mental illness, but a lot of people who uh, may, that may not be what's driving their homelessness at that point. It may be long-term lack of employment history. It may be a long-term lack of rental history. And so as you're applying in these cities now that are experiencing these low vacancy rates, it's hard to get a place. Right, because they're using it's hard stricter to get a job criteria with them doing stricter yeah, and, credit and things checks. Things kind and, of pile up on you. You may you right. may uh, uh, have a really hard time getting a job if you don't have an address. Right, right. I mean, right. a lot of employers, you know, would hmm, uh, and they they look at that long term unemployment, a big gap. Uh, you know, uh, that makes it also difficult. 
So uh, that's why we work so hard at Central City Concern in all of these areas of, of housing, uh, health care, and employment. Right. So, like, uh, you, you know, you mentioned depression in there, and we've talked um, a little bit on this podcast before about this idea of, of learned helplessness, where uh, you do these studies with these rats, where... Um, you, you know, a couple of major contributors of, uh, of stress is, is um, the ability to um, know whether it's coming and then also having, having the ability to do something about it. So you can take a rat and, and you can turn a light on and mm -hmm. it knows when it's going to get shocked and it can brace itself for it and it will show lower levels of stress than just randomly shocking a rat. And then you can also have, take a rat and, and have a different part of the cage that won't uh, th that they can move to where they won't get shocked. But if you eliminate both of these um, uh, variables and you're just shocking these rats randomly and there's nothing they can do about it, and then uh, train them to basically give up, uh, then you try to put them in a new environment where they are able to learn and are able to get themselves out of it, and they just can't learn this. Like yeah. any normal rat would be able to learn, oh, I can move over here. Once these rats have been trained, this kind of learned helplessness, they just can't figure it out to, hey, I can move over to this other part of the cage. So what, if, as, as someone that's working with these people that have... Um, Possibly been unemployed for a while. Possibly, you know, obviously fallen on hard times. Mm -hmm. Surely going through horrible stressors and everything. What what kind of what is the process in working toward helping these people become employable and helping these people find jobs? Well, what you hear uh, in so many cases is when people are living on the streets, the exhaustion that happens. Um, it's very difficult to sleep at night because that's a dangerous time to sleep. Uh, it's a, a dangerous time to be vulnerable. Uh, and the constant uh, moving, moving around, even if they stay local, mostly local. Uh, and the, it's, it's one minute of survival to the next, and it's exhausting. To, so try to look forward, trying to look, hey, if I do this and this and this over the next year or two, I'll finally get off the streets is very difficult. Uh, for a lot of people. The second thing I want to say about that, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people want to be off the streets. Right. Um, but they may not know how to go about doing that. What's important for us at Central City Concern, I mentioned we had about 750 employees. About 50% of those folks are in recovery from addictions. Many of them have experienced homelessness, incarceration, that type of thing. So one of the primary methods we use is what we call peer mentors or people that just work in our programs have been there. Mm -hmm. So when people come to us, they are surrounded by people who know what they're going through, who really want them off the streets, who welcome them into our employment programs or our several health-related programs or our housing. Uh, they're going to be around people that have been there. Uh, they often inspire them just by example, people coming off the streets. Well, if you could do it, maybe I could do it. Uh, and they go through a, a period of adjustment. You know, uh, I was just talking to a gentleman the other day that said when he finally got his own apartment, uh, he slept on the couch for months. Uh, he was just not, he just could not believe he actually had an apartment, and he didn't want to depend on it. Mm. 
it was too scary because so many experiences he had of not being able to stay put, uh, being asked to move on. Right. You can't stay here anymore. You can't sleep here anymore. You catch uh, a little bit you, of a break and it falls through. We've had other people that have been in the street so long that is, we actually have to teach them to live in an apartment, how to cook, how to shop, how to clean your apartment. Uh, those are extreme cases for sure. Uh, most people can make that transition, but if they've been traumatized on the street, if they've been committed to violence, if they have uh, experienced exploitation, if they live in a uh, a group that is very authoritarian, uh, then you know they're going to come out of that. They're going to have a period of adjustment, and also just the confidence building. And I've seen this happen to people who have degrees, college degrees, and uh, licenses. You know, fall into uh, an addiction or have a mental illness manifest itself. Uh, be in these situations where it takes them that period of adjustment to get the confidence back that. Uh, they can uh, uh, one day uh, meet their own expectations of what they should be able to do in employment and paying for their own housing. Yeah, that's, I, I, I like that. Uh, peers coming from a place of It's the most effective intervention for a lot of the people that we see. Seems uh, more effective than having, like, Donald Trump tell you to yeah, pull up your bootstraps yeah. or something right. when he's born into a billion dollars or, yeah, you know, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, just a, yeah. a silly example off the yeah. top of my head. But but um, but that is... Uh, uh, that seems so... I mean, even as a comedian, you know, it would be all, like, talking with people that we can identify with, and it's it's hard to, uh, you know, even as a comedian, sometimes you, you go through um, some rough patches here and nothing like homelessness or whatever, but um, I only use the example as, uh, you know, we often identify with other people that we that are in our peer group, right. and, um, and, and it's often so uplifting to see someone that, started at the same place that you did and say, uh, you know, open mics or you saw them and then, and then you saw them and then you see them have success and, and that gives you hope and in much the same way that's amazing to have someone who was a drug addict and, you know, rock bottom and then now doing well for themselves and caring for others. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that. I mean, we, we see um, so much success amongst this population if they get the housing and they get the right services and if they are surrounded by the right kind of social support. Uh, that takes some time with some folks. I also want to emphasize there are other people that are on the streets uh, due to economic uh, dislocation right. that uh, with housing can get off the streets right away. Uh, there are people, generally speaking, even people with serious mental illness and addictions, if they can get housing and the right kind of support services. They're going to do fine. They're going to do great. And you're going to see big change. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that it's always easy. Right. People may go through several experiences of having housing before they finally are able to stabilize. Um, but these are the basic things that are that have been missing. Uh, it's the basic reason we have so much homelessness in, in addition to the economic downturns we occasionally have uh, and these other policy issues around deinstitutionalization, uh, people coming out of the prison systems without places to live, mm. without employment services, uh, maybe needing uh, behavioral health uh, support services and not having them. There are new opportunities for this now. 
but particularly on the housing side, we're behind. Because, and I say there are new opportunities for that in Oregon, in the states that, that did take advantage of the Medicaid expan- uh, expansion. There are new resources for uh, those, those health care and uh, drug and alcohol treatment and mental health services that didn't exist before. Uh, but those services, uh, you know, with those services, you're going to improve the situation. But with housing, you're going to see much more dramatic improvements. You know, since you bring it up, and I don't mean to um, ask you about something that may not be your um, expertise or whatever, but but you bring up uh, uh, people coming out of prison. What what is the process? I mean, when someone gets released from prison that's been in there uh, for years, these are often. I mean, what does happen if they don't have any family support? Or right, right. Well, some states and some local jurisdictions are are better at trying to plan for that transition mm-hmm. uh, than others. Uh, but so often people are coming out of long-term incarceration uh, with uh, not much in any terms of financial resources. And uh, it's often hard to place them in jobs because they're criminal history. Uh, we've found that uh, the vast majority of people that come to us uh, out of the prison system actually make very good employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've been very successful in, in, in finding jobs for people with our uh, supportive employment approach. Uh, but, uh, but generally speaking, they're gonna, if they're coming out without a place to live, without any job opportunities, with uh, mental health or addiction issues untreated, uh, they're going to have a really tough time. And uh, the rate of recidivism uh, doesn't need to be as high as it is if we had the right kind of services. So we're seeing actually a national movement across political lines, by the way, uh, for different reasons. Uh, the prison system was really built up in the 80s and 90s in this country. Uh, sentencing, uh, uh, sentencing laws had become much more restrictive and punitive. Uh, and we're seeing now... Uh, a reset on that and from both conservatives and, and liberals for yeah. different reasons. And we, we, uh, the land we, of the free has we, the world's largest prison that's system. Exactly, over 2 million people. And uh, it's, it's not sustainable financially. That's, I right. think, how conservatives are seeing it. But they're also uh, perhaps some of them worried about these heavy sentences of being too intrusive. Uh, and the liberal side would probably agree with both those things. Uh, so where you get this commonality, now you're seeing this push. Uh, what I'd be concerned about is if you push them out faster than the community resources can be organized and put in place, then then we're going to have uh, some, uh, some repeat offenders. Uh, we're going to have where some you know uh, we're not going to be as successful as we could be. Okay, so just before we wrap up here, um, uh, so I always have my guests uh, mention the charity of the week, which we don't have to guess at what that's going to be on this episode, um, uh, so people can go to Central City Concern and, um, and find out more information. What, what can people do if they want to help? Well, people can certainly donate. Uh, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, we... We need we need the more housing. We need the services that Medicaid won't pay for. Uh, we need to uh, expand opportunities for people that even under the ACA expansion don't have insurance. Uh, uh, so there's all kinds of needs. The kids we have, we, you know, we we serve everyone from pregnant women, uh, families with you know young children to people at the end of their life. Uh, you know, kids need clothes. Uh, people need food. Uh, they need all kinds of support like that. 
So certainly uh, we're always raising money like a lot of nonprofits in this uh, business. Uh, but we also um, have quite a volunteer workforce here. So people can also contact us for, volu- for volunteering uh, with, with folks we serve. So um, the last thing before we go, I was, I was curious, what are you, um, what, what are you looking forward to? With, like, what, what are you optimistic about in, um, with, with uh, kind of maybe various laws that might be being changed, like we just talked about with, uh, uh, with prison reform, and, um, and specifically with uh, Central City Concern? Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, here locally it's certainly uh, happening and has been happening for a while. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a city and, and counties that are looking for, particularly Multnomah County in our case, because that's where the county where most of our programs are. But we, we, uh, I'm hopeful that people are understanding that uh, the building up of uh, community infrastructure uh, in terms of the housing, in terms of support services, is, is been lacking. It's we've not paid enough attention to that as a society. If we want to avoid, you know, a lot of very expensive hospital costs and prison costs and psychiatric state hospital costs. Uh, the alternative to that is to have the services and the housing based in the communities. So I'm hopeful that uh, I think there's a better understanding of that that gap out there. I think it's a political issue uh, to some degree, but uh, I am a little bit more hopeful on that front. I'm hopeful on the science end of things uh, that we're, you know, under the under the guise of science, we've made big mistakes uh, also that have right. had those iatrogenic effects. Uh, but at least with science, you can go through a self-correction right. and re-examination and improvement. And I'm, I'm hopeful with the increased knowledge of how uh, medications can both help and hurt people with mental illness and addictions. And I'm hopeful that we'll get better at those things. Uh, my concerns are... Uh, that, uh, you know, on that science and the pharmaceutical intervention is what's happened to the price of a lot of these pharmaceuticals. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we've seen out of the reach or breaking budgets, state budgets for Medicaid uh, potential with some some uh, promising medications for hepatitis C, for example, uh, which is so prevalent uh, in the uh, addiction population mm-hmm. and, uh, and other populations. Uh, you know, we need... Uh, we need those prices to come down. And so we have challenges, but there are so also some places of hope. Uh, we certainly see here locally, um, now we're seeing a strong a- uh, reaction to the uh, house- housing crisis that we have here. So um, there's a reason to have hope. Uh, but, you know, uh, I've been in this business for 25 years, and I'm, I'm not a shiny object kind of person anymore. I, right. I want to see... Uh, either a lot of clinical experience, uh, a lot of experience in the world combined with the research uh, to move us forward. Uh, so I'm hopeful uh, we have a lot to learn. As long as we think we have a lot to learn, I'll be hopeful. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you, Ed Blackburn, for, for giving me your time out of your very busy schedule doing exceptionally important work. Uh, this has been fantastic. Yes, I, I appreciate it. This is a different type of interview. <laughs> I'm used to doing like five or five minute interviews. <laughs> oh, you did Looking great. For the zinger, what can I say? Uh, yeah. okay. uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, listeners, for being curious. And I'll talk with you next week. Thank you all for listening. So, as you heard, science is uh, is going to be one of the big things, um, you know, in the in the future of trying to figure out how these uh, problems can be resolved and how we can educate ourselves more about them. So, the thinking is is what I'll do eventually is uh, is we'll be talking about people on the ground with stuff like this, and then we'll also have academics talking about. Uh, homelessness from a variety of angles. I want to talk about, um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, homeless veterans coming up. Um, and uh, I, I want to talk about uh, PTSD, the the neuroscience, and, and possibly the evolutionary psychology, biology, that, you know, as many different angles as we can on issues like that, talking about um, drug addiction, talking about um, housing, talk, talking about um economic inequality and its effect on people and especially um, its effect on on stress levels and what stress does to the brain and then you know we'll be talking about upbringing and and everything and and so the idea is is that we'll be tying all of these ideas together um, and forming a really clear picture of exactly what's going on and i to be honest i i have i have no idea what i'm doing i never have the entire time that i've been doing this podcast i can't say that i have at all known what i'm doing i'm just kind of following my natural curiosities and seeing where they lead and so far i feel like we've made a lot of progress and we've learned a lot so i'm going to keep on doing what i'm doing which also involves taking suggestions from you guys so make sure and write anytime you feel like it to the here we are podcast website go to the ask a scientist that communicates directly to me and i'll try to bring up some of the issues that uh, you have questions about on the show you guys are fantastic i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope if you are listening to this um uh, immediately i hope you have a wonderful thanksgiving or um if you're a little behind a wonderful holiday season um hanukkah kwanzaa christmas whatever you're into and um maybe you're listening to this late uh, happy valentine's day or maybe you have a birthday coming up happy happy birthday whatever it is um uh i wish you a wonderful life and a wonderful time and thank you guys for uh, for listening and being supportive. And again, we have a very special uh, link, a, a trial this this week. And if you go to the herewearepodcast.com website and click on the donation page, it will actually be your donations and your clicks will will be tracked so we can figure out kind of the impact that this podcast is making the interest that there might be and and uh hopefully use that for amongst many things to inspire other listeners and to um and and to get uh more um interesting fantastic guests so thank you guys for all your support and i'll talk to you tomorrow actually um a really good episode tomorrow 
from from uh, uh, we'll we'll get to hear the um, the the life and and work of of someone who is actually homeless and and now uh, a recovering addict who's working with people. So make sure and tune in to that one. It's a really fun episode. Thank you so much. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>